Hey, well, let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Judges chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some that are right there on the, uh, on the table. And one of our ushers, just raise your hand and they can get you one. Did you know we've been in this study of the, called The Story? It's a chronological walk through the Bible. And, and we'll kind of set it to rest next week as we look at Ruth. And then uh, we'll lay aside for Christmas and come back and pick it up again in, uh, in the new year. But we've gotten as far as we're into Judges today. Hey, remember when God made that covenant with Abraham back in in, uh, Genesis? And He promised him two things. He says, first of all, there's going to be people. He says, your descendants will be like the stars in heaven. And boy, that really happened. Because remember when the the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt and they left 600,000 men? So in that time, they've been in captivity 400 years there in Egypt. And then he said, the other promise was, I'm going to give you a land of milk and honey. And that promise was the promised land, the land of Canaan. And uh, last week, we got the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. There was a long waiting period. There had been decades of wandering in the, uh, in the wilderness, 40 years there, centuries of slavery in Egypt. Uh, another decade has taken place since the conquest of of the promised land that we've been in Joshua, and now we come to Judges. And for the first time in human history, we have this generation of human beings who has the opportunity to live freely and unencumbered under the direct rule of God. And they get to be a community that will be of such love and light and righteousness that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Because wasn't that the promise? You'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing to the world. And that's the opportunity these people have. Let's see how they do. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. What happened here is the the different tribes went to different parts of of the promised land. Verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance. Verse 10, after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. I just want to pause there for a moment. Keep your finger there. In a sense, the whole reason for the crisis that exists in the book of Judges is right here in verse 10. It was the torch of faith did not get passed on to the next generation. And if you ever wonder, why do we invest so heavily in our children's ministry here? You just have to look at Judges 2.10. And think about what would be true of us and of our community if this were true. That there was a whole generation who did not know God. You know, The torch is not easily passed. And one of the greatest challenges here at Water's Edge is to try and serve different generations in the same place at the same time. Anybody ever notice in our society that people who are of different ages do not always have the same taste in music? (laughs) You You come to Water's Edge and I guarantee you, if you're on the young side, sometimes Water's Edge will seem old. And if you're on the old old side of life, sometimes Water's Edge will seem too young. And if you're not sure what side you're on, you're old. <laughs> so, well, the book of Judges, I think, it, it may be the saddest book of the Old Testament 
because the torch just does not get passed on. And this is an unbelievable opportunity, finally after centuries, to create a community of light and to bless the world. They miss it. Now let's read on at verse 12. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and they worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but, pro- but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, this is a vicious cycle, and I think I can give you a good analogy for this. In in the former church, before I came here, while I was there, we built a uh, community center, and there was a fitness center that was a part of it. And uh, I used to go down there and work out sometimes. And what was kind of interesting is it came January, and I couldn't get on a machine. Because, you know, people just seemed they were in there all the time. And, you know, our fitness director said, don't worry, just wait till February, because uh, they'll all be gone. And here's the cycle. People get out of shape. They feel guilty about it. They work out for a while. Then they get bored. They stop working out. They get out of shape. They feel guilty. And so then the whole cycle starts working all over again. I, I read this a while ago. A woman comes into a health club and she sheep- sheepishly says to the trainer, at the beginning of the year, uh, you probably haven't seen me in a long time. Every year I make a new resolution, and then I get a membership, and I pay for it, and I work out for a couple weeks in January, and then I give up for the rest of the year. I'm sure you guys probably have a word for people like me. And the fitness instructor said, yes, we do. Profit. Uh, now, there's the same cycle that takes place in the book of Judges. God gives victory to the people under Joshua, and they have an air of peace, And then the people grow complacent, and they give in to sin, and then God has to hand them over to their enemies, and then they're in a period of pain, and because they're in pain, the text says they cry out to God, help us. And God sends a deliverer, and for a while, they have a period of peace again, and then they're back into sin, and it's that same cycle again and again. Now look over at Judges 3.7, because you're going to see the bare bones of this cycle. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot their Lord or their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. So that's sin. Verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the uh, king of Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. There's the pain. Verse 9. But they cried out to the Lord, and he raised up for them a deliverer. And this happened to be Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. 
And that's the crying out. And so it's the brother of Caleb who delivers them, and he becomes Israel's judge. Look at verse 10 just for a second. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. Let me just say a quick word about judge here, because I think in some ways this is an unfortunate translation. And I I think I grew up thinking about this, that that whenever I thought of a judge, I thought of somebody in a courtroom with a, a robe on, and he was making the verdicts about how people did things. But the simplest verb to translate this from the Hebrew would be to lead. And so these judges had a moral and a political and most of the time primarily a military uh, leadership among the people of Israel. Not always. And by the way, they're not perfect people. And if you've been reading along in the story with us, you know how true that is. And uh, oftentimes it seems quite violent. And sometimes these deeply flawed people are used by God to lead. And, uh, and God does that here. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So he became Israel's judge and he went to war. So it's military operations, and then God delivers the people, and then the Bible says they have peace for 40 years. And you would hope that these people have learned their lesson. Look at verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave them over to Eglon, king of Moab, power uh, over Israel. Now, this time their enemies aren't some foreign power. This happened, the Moabites happened to be their neighbors, and some of them were their relatives because they had intermarried with the Moabite women. Now, the last time the king came from Mesopotamia, here they are right there among them. And by the way, the Moabites were the descendants of Lot. So Israel is oppressed for 18 years. Look down to verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. Now, I've often wondered, why did he say he's a left-handed man? You know, what's the point of that? I guess it's because God hardly ever uses left-handed people. No, that's, that's not true. I just, I was joking. Uh, I, I'm left-handed, so I hope that's not true. But literally, the phrase would be translated from the Hebrew, he was hindered in his right hand. It it could mean that he was handicapped in his right hand. It doesn't always mean that, but it can mean that. So it's possible that what what they're trying to say here is that, hey, do you know anybody who's disabled or has a disability? God can use them too, and he uses a disabled person here to deliver Israel. Now, look what follows. This is a scene like right out of a movie. Verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, that would be a foot and a half, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and he said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. And Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. And the king rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him. And he locked them. 
Now, this is a very violent story, and Ehud calls the Israelites now to follow him because he says, God has delivered us from the Moabites after all these years of oppression. Now, maybe the Israelites have learned their lesson. Turn to chapter 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in some place. And because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. And once again, God responds. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophet, a wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at the time. And I want you to notice just two, two quick things about this. First of all, she's a prophet. That has not been true of all the judges. Uh, you will also see that many of the judges did not walk closely with God. Apparently, she does. So much so that God chose her to be the one through, him, through whom he would proclaim his word to the people. The second thing you'll notice about this unusual judge, Deborah, is that she's a woman. And I mention this because, as you know, many people have questions about women teaching and leading in the church. This is a subject uh, which many well-meaning Christians disagree about. But I just want to point this out. Paul says, So there's neither male nor female, but we're all one, for the Holy Spirit is poured out on men and women alike. But even in the Old Testament... Deborah is the highest leader of Israel. And although she's married, she, not her husband, has been chosen to be the the leader of God's people. In fact, her husband was part of Israel, so on the one hand, you would say that she was leading her husband. And you'll notice that the text doesn't say that the reason that she did this was because her husband was a wimp, or because all men were spiritually apathetic, and so therefore he had to install a woman to shame them, That's not what it says. And we'll see what respect she commands, because this is a remarkable story. In fact, if you were with us last summer, we we studied in detail the story of Deborah. She calls the commander-in-chief of the Israeli army, his name is Barak, and she gives him an order to march against Sisera, who's the commander of the enemy army. And uh, look at verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, and he's saying this to a woman, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. I mean, he's the commander-in-chief, he's the big general, and he's not going to go to battle unless a woman goes with him. It's counter to all our stereotypes. It reminds me of a story that actually happened, and some of you might have read about this before. In the Mattel factory years ago, somebody mixed up the voice boxes with the G.I. Joe doll and the Barbie doll. I'm not making this up, it actually happened. So what happened, it dramatized a lot of kids who, when they got the wrong dolls, because when they pulled Barbie's cord, Barbie would say, let's move out, show some guts. (laughs) And when the little boys would pull their G.I. Joe cord, G.I. Joe said, okay, let's go shopping. (laughs) So so there's a reversal here of uh, that was a little traumatizing, but uh, let's see what's going on the text here. The general says, I'm not going to battle unless you, Deborah, a woman, will go with me. And I think the reason he's saying that is because I realize that I want God's presence and you're a godly person. And if the Lord doesn't go with us, we're not, we're not going to win this battle. And so it all works out. They go to battle and again, 
God delivers his people. He sends a storm. The river floods up. There's all this mud on the plain. Those 900 chariots get stuck in the mud. Israel comes along and they, they wipe out the, the army, the enemy army. Sisera, the commander, he, he runs away and he hides in the tent of a woman by the name of uh, Jael. If you know anything about that story, Jael slips him a mickey, I think, and uh, she takes a tent spike and she just hammers it right through his head and she kills him. And now, now Israel is free again after the, these years of captivity. And in verse 21, it, it talks about what she did. And once again, Israel is delivered from oppression. Now, maybe Israel will learn their lesson. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you would think by now God's patience would be wearing out, wouldn't you? You know, Look at verse 1. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor nor donkeys. So you can see the incredible level of oppression here. Verse 5, they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And one more time, God responds. And now comes one of the most unlikely characters in all of Israel. It's Gideon. And I think you have to understand to appreciate the story of Gideon that this is a guy who fought fear and doubt his whole life. Anybody here, he, he, had an, he was attitude challenged, we'll say. Anybody here ever watch uh, Andy of... Uh, the Andy Griffin Show? Remember May, Mayberry? Okay. Do you, you remember Barney Fife? As we look through the story of Gideon here to kind of pull things together, I want you to think Barney Fife. Because in a sense, that's who Gideon is. He has a high level of anxiety. He's got a lot of fear that he lives with. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Abrezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Just a small detail here to stop for a second. Usually wheat would be threshed at ground level because the wind would blow the, the chaff away. Gideon, it says, is down in a wine press which is hollowed out in the ground and it's down below. And one commentator said this, he's doing this because he's scared and he wants to hide from the Midianites. And so that's where we first see him hiding from the Midianites. Verse 11 continues. He's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, the Lord, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Hey, those of you who are parents, don't we kind of talk to our kids like this? How's my honor student today? <laughs> Hoping that they might go up to what we call them, you know. Uh, mighty warrior, that is not a description of Gideon. And Gideon looks around and he goes, you talking to me? You know, look at verse 13. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. 
The Lord turned to him and he said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon can't believe this. And so he asked for a sign, and God gives him a miraculous fire to consume his sacrifice. And God tells Gideon that now he's supposed to tear down his father's idol to Baal and to build an altar to God, and that the God of Israel is the one that should be sacrificed to. Now look at Judges 6.27. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was a Barney Fife, he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, and he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So God protects him, and he succeeds. And now it's time to do battle with the Midianites that God has called him to do. You would think that Gideon would have enough faith by now, but he doesn't. He lays out a fleece. Now, by the way, this has become quite a famous thing, setting out a fleece. It's, it's a common practice that some people use. It's often done by Christians. Uh, We kind of say, you know, okay, God, uh, I'm going to lay this fleece out, and if this happens, then I'll know it's what you want me to do. We think that this this is biblical. When it's used in the Bible, it's a negative. It's not a positive. Look at verse 36. God said to, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. Now, did you notice what he says? God had already promised, hadn't he? He said, I'm going to deliver them into your hand. Gideon says, verse verse 37, Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew on any of the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you, you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose. Early the next day, he squeezed the fleece and he wrung out the dew and a bowl full of water. And then Gideon said to the Lord, verse 39, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. And by this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground covered be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. And so this fleece is not an expression of trust and of faith. It's an expression of weakness. And to be honest with you, it's immaturity on Gideon's part. And I mention this because many people today misuse this fleece idea and they sometimes get pretty superstitious as some, as, as if this is some way of interacting with God. I heard about a guy several years ago who was so infatuated with this woman that he had never dated before. He was listening on the radio in his car and he was listening to the song and so he said, alright God, I'll know that this is the woman that you have for me if I push the button and it comes to another station and it's playing the same song as this station is playing. And he pushed the button, and sure enough, the same song was playing. He hadn't even dated this woman yet, and when he went and told her that God had told him that this was <laughs> they were supposed to be together, they never even got a first date. So uh, she turned him down on the spot. So I think sometimes this does a lot of damage to people, this, this fleece mentality. I have a friend named Ken Davis. He's a Christian comedian, and we used to work together on Youth for Christ staff years ago. And he was telling me about an incident one time. He said he was driving, driving down the street, and there was this bakery. And he said, okay, God, 
I know it's your will that I have a donut if there's a parking space right in front of the bakery. And after going around the, set, the block seven times, there was a space that was available there. So, you see, you can manipulate the fleece almost any way you want to if you want to. But the way to learn God's discernment is by having a mind that's immersed in Scripture, being in prayer, learning to listen to God, having corporate guidance. The Bible says there's wisdom in the counsel of Benny, trusted brothers and sisters who help you in, in developing wisdom as well. So this flea still is all about immaturity. But as is often the case, God is gracious and so he does, he comes through with the flea steel. And this doesn't mean it's a precedent, by the way. So finally Gideon is ready. Judges chapter 7, they go to war against the Midianites. God sends out a call, by the way. At this time, there were judges, there might be more than one judge going on, because remember you had 12 tribes of Israel, and so sometimes there might be one judge who's over a large group, some might be two judges at the same time over different sections, but at this time when Gideon is, he put out a call to all of the tribes of Israel that they were going to have to go and fight against uh, the Midianites, and so uh, this isn't just a localized thing, and 32,000 people respond to be recruits. The only problem is you find out in chapter 8 that the Midianites had 135,000 soldiers. So that's like four to one. So God comes to Gideon and says, hey, Gideon, the enemy has 135,000 troops. You've got 32,000. I think we've got a numbers problem. And Gideon says, I'm so glad to hear you say that, God, because I was afraid you were going to send me into battle with just 32,000 people. And God says, no, I wouldn't do that. You don't need that many. So he says, send home everybody that's afraid. And Gideon isn't very happy about this. And so he has to say to the troops, and I expect that he did this in such a way that he was shaming those people who left. Well, if any of you are afraid of just a little battle with the Midianites, then you can go ahead and go home. And 22,000 went home. It's an indication that morale was not very high. Now there's 10,000 soldiers left. Gideon is now outnumbered 13 to 1. And God says, Gideon, you have a numbers problem. And Gideon says, okay, God, I don't need your help anymore. And God says, no, let's go another round. And he tells Gideon, have everybody go to the drink by the water bank. And those who get down on their knees to drink, he says, you send them home. And those who lap up the water in their hands and, and lick like a dog, those are the ones that you will keep. There were 300 of them who did that. So 9,700 guys are now supposed to go home. Now, the question is, why do you think they lap like a dog? When I was a boy, I remember my pastor preaching a sermon on this. And he said, well, the reason that he picked those guys is because when they were picking the water up like this and they weren't just down, you know, drinking out of it, they would be aware that there would be enemies around them. And I always thought, no, that seemed pretty smart. That's, so they picked the best troops. But do you want to know something that's really interesting? Never in the Bible is the word dog used in a positive way. It is always used negatively. It's a derogatory bo- word. In fact, the Bible is not pro-dog. <laughs> hey, listen, there's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Doug Stewart. I was reading this, and listen to what he says. 
probably. The idea is the guys that drank this way, that lapped like a dog, is they're doing it in kind of a geeky way. They are kind of the awkward guys. These are not the elite troops. These are not the Navy SEALs that he's being left with. The whole point, writes Stuart, is that God is winnowing the army down so it would be clear that if the battle was won, that God had done it and God alone won the victory. And so the reason, so, so these are the geeky guys. These are the, the worst guys you'd want to go to battle. And I think it's not just that God wants it to prove that he's the, the one who won the battle. I think he's trying to break the cycle of sin and pain. And he wants Israel to know that their only hope is to trust in him and to submit to him. So he lives Gideon with the 300 dog lappers, geeky guys, who are going to trip over their own swords. And the Midianites soldiers now outnumber them 450 to 1. And God gives Midian one more miraculous sign. Again, it's a little funny detail in chapter 7, verse 10. God says to Gideon, if you're afraid of the attack, I want you to go down to the camp and listen to what they're saying. So they go down to the Midianite camp and they, this one guy says, man, I had this weird dream. I dreamed that this loaf of bread came and wiped out our whole army. And this guy says, hey, I interpret dreams. That means that Gideon's going to come and wipe us out. And that gave confidence to Gideon that indeed that they should go for the battle. In other words, we're not afraid. You don't, you don't have to, you know, uh, you, you can trust God. Now, do you think he was afraid? I do. Uh, but anyway, the sad part of the story of Gideon is this, that even after they won the battle, he didn't finish well. And now I'll just summarize it this way. You can read the latter part of chapter 8. It's very interesting. Towards the end of his life, people offer to make Gideon the king of Israel. And he says no. And then he does all kinds of negative things. In Deuteronomy 17.7, God had said, if you want a king, he's going to take all your gold. And Gideon does exactly that. And he has the people give him enormous amounts of gold. And then his family life is a mess. Gideon ends up with 70 sons. He doesn't become king, but one of his sons, Abimelech, he says, I'll be the king. And so he kills 69 of his brothers so that nobody will challenge him to that. And uh, worst of all is the defilement that comes from not honoring the second commandment because out of this gold he builds a religious image and then he leads the people of Israel into worshiping and idolatry. And in Judges 8.27, it's really a sad verse. It says, All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And so he doesn't finish well. Well, we'll stop there and just notice this one thing about this cycle. I think a major point of the book of Judges is how often the cycle gets repeated. Twelve times the people choose sin and then the pain that comes along. And they choose sin, and the pains come along, and sin, the pains come along. And you would think after five or six times, they'd get the point. I mean, a two-year-old can usually make a connection between behavior and pain. But they keep falling for the same thing. And the same thing was this. It was the besetting sin of worshiping Baal. It was the evil one that made Baal worship look so attractive. And that's the reason why Israel kept falling. It was convenient. See, the, the children of Israel were supposed to travel to the tabernacle three times a year and, and to worship the God of Israel there. There were shrines to Baal, one scholar says, on every high hill and under every green tree. It was built for self-gratification, this Baal worship. There's no Ten Commandments, so you don't have to be holy. 
There's no ethical connection with worship. Sexual promiscuity was just built right into the worship. And so as you gave these offerings to Bill, he had to come through. He had to grant your requests. It was just normal Bill worship, and everybody in the world did it. And they believed lots of gods. One, one uncovering shows that there were 611 gods that they would worship for all kinds of things. And it was attractive to do this. Now, before we get too judgmental about Israel, do you know anybody else who keeps falling into this? I do. I mean, I have that problem more than I really want to admit. See, this hasn't changed. And you can count on the evil one that the moment of temptation to make sin look attractive and to hide your view of the pain that inevitably follows sin, you can just count on it. And the reality is, it's always like the Garden of Eden. Every sin is like a mini-fall. Guilt, pain, shame, hiding. I fell for it again. And you know that pain. And it's the regret that stabs you on the inside and it damages your relationships on the outside with other people. And God just keep ask, keeps asking, how much pain will it take before you learn? You know, we all want the pain to stop, but the real difference is when we have true repentance. Because these people wanted the pain to stop and they cried out to God, but there wasn't authentic repentance where they said, God, I want to be right. I'm tired of Baal having a grip on me. I want to be whole. I want to be clean. I don't care what it takes, God. I'll embrace that pain if it can move me towards life and light. And that's the repentance that God responds to. Even with these fallen people, when when they fall so many times, God keeps answering. He keeps offering grace. Really, there's two things you can count on, two things in this world. You can count on the evil one to deceive you. He'll tell you that Baal will won't disappoint. You can count on the sin that, that, that will lead to pain or you can count on God to be faithful. And that's the good news. You can count on Him to forgive. You can count on God's grace. Maybe you've been going through some stuff in your own life and today you would just finally say, you know what, I'm tired of the cycle. And just ask Christ to forgive your sin and to become your Savior. And if you do, He will because He is faithful. That's what God does for people who are truly repentant. So let's just bow and pray together as we close. And just where you are, what's the cycle that you need to break in your life? Maybe it's anger and you power up and then it feels so good to let it go and then there's the pain of the consequences. Maybe it has something to do with your sexuality. Maybe it has something to do with truth-telling and gossiping. And it does feel good. But then the pain comes. Father, I think of the Scripture that says, These things happen to them so that we might do, not do as they have done. And so as we've studied this portion of Judges today, I, I just pray that the lesson that we'll learn is that we need to break that cycle and that today we could receive your forgiveness and that by way of your Spirit, uh, we'd have true repentance and not fall into the, the subtle 
temptation of worshiping other gods. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.